Well, here we are, 12 weeks later. There's a part of me that is trying to get my head wrapped around that on June 1st, we started in the book of Judges and we're already at the end of August. And at the end of the book of Judges. Anthony last week, if you remember, he had some books here and had like the bookends and talking how chapters 17 through 21 kind of bookend uh, wrap up brings us full circle in the book of Judges. Chapter 17 through 21 actually take place historically in the time frame at the beginning of the book. In chapter 17 and 18, we find out in the last couple verses of chapter 18 that the Levite, who is serving as priest in a house of idols, is the grandson of Moses. Get your head wrapped around that. And we read this and, and we wonder, why is this at the end of the book? It took place at the beginning. And to get that is to understand that we don't think like most of the world thinks. In the Western world, we want to go from point A to point B to point C to point D in order and we don't want to skip around. Most of the world thinks like this. In a, not in a circle, but they don't think in a line or linear, linearly. Don's brother-in-law, David, is a perfect example. He's lived in the Middle East most of his life. And if he doesn't think like that culture... He hides it well because he definitely speaks. And the first couple times I heard David speak, I was frustrated. And to me, I just had the mental picture of a couple squirrels chasing each other around and up and down a tree. Where is he going? And how did he get here? And why are we back here? And I came to understand it's not the randomness of a couple squirrels. It's, we'll start the story here and we'll work our way around and we'll make our point. It doesn't have to go A, B, C, D. And in the book of Judges, Samuel in all likelihood is the author of the book of Judges. And what Samuel is doing is he's circling back around. And it's not that we progressively got worse, we started out terrible. And this is why we've had these judges. Let's not forget that we got to this point over a long period of time. We got here pretty quickly. It got ugly in a hurry. And in chapters 19, 20, and 21, Verse 19, verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. And we find another Levite. Not the same one that we saw in 18 and 19. This is a different one. 
But what it shows us is, and as Anthony mentioned last week, the Levites were set apart to be the spiritual leaders and guides and teachers in Israel, to communicate the truth and to show the people how to live. And yet, the spiritual advisors, the ones who were looked to for spiritual leadership, had completely blown it. And so what will it, why expect anyone else to get it right? And so we find another Levite in the hill country of Ephraim. This is kind of in the middle of the country on the west side of the Jordan. And he's living up there and it says he took to himself a concubine. Just think common law wife. All right, you're not really married, but you're married. You've never formalized it. That wasn't God's plan. It wasn't his intent for his people to live like that. But this is what the Levite, the spiritual advisor in Israel, this is what he had done. And his concubine, after some time, ran off with somebody else. And then after a time, she returned home to her father's house. And after four months, and I don't want to argue over this, so if, but four months after she returned home, so how long she was running around with the other guy or the other fellas, we don't know. Was it a four-month time or was it just four months after she stop doing what she was doing and she returned home to her father's house. The Levite gets word of it and he says, you know, she really wasn't so bad to have around. So he goes from where he's at in Ephraim, roughly 30 miles, a long day's journey on foot or by horse or by donkey, goes down to Bethlehem, to his father-in-law's house. He says, I'm here to bring her back with me, and her father is overjoyed. Now, is that because she's a handful and he's ready to be rid of her? Is that because he's tired of taking care of her? Or is it because, good, the relationship can be restored to a a right or a better place? We don't know. We just know he comes back to get her. They throw a party. And scripture isn't necessarily clear in this. If you read what many of the rabbis will teach, Jewish custom is they eat and they drink and they get drunk. And he wakes up late the next morning. Well, it's too late to start on the journey. This turns into a four-day bender. in which the Levite, the spiritual advisor, and his father-in-law, and the house, and whatever else is going on, they're just drinking and eating themselves silly. And on the morning, late morning of the fifth day, after four days of carrying on like this, the Levite's like, I gotta get home, I can't keep doing this, this isn't, I gotta get going. 
Well, it's so late, just stay another day. Well, we've been playing this game for four days. I'm done. I'm hungover. My head hurts. We're just leaving now. And so rather than leaving early in the morning and getting back home or very close to home in a day's, one long day's journey, now they're taking off around lunch and they're making it about halfway. And where Bethlehem is, south of Jerusalem, now they're, they're getting up to, it's called Jabus at the time. It's not Jerusalem yet. Jerusalem has not been conquered. Jerusalem is not conquered until King David does it. 450 years down the road from when this takes place. And so the Jebusites live there and as they're getting close there, we need to turn in for the night. We can't keep going. It's not safe to stay out. And the concubine saying, let's, let's just stop here. Let's just stop here in Jabus. We'll stay with the Jebusites. And, and, and the Levite's like, no. They're heathens. They don't follow God. And he's doing a great job of that himself. He says, we're going to keep going until we can stay in a town or a city of our countrymen who know and follow and honor God. So they go on to this place called Gibeah, and they go into the city, it's late in the day, and they're looking around, and there's no place to stay, and no one is offering them a place to stay, which is completely foreign in this culture. Hospitality is at a premium in this culture, and yet nobody is opening their home until one old guy comes in from the field, and he sees them here and says, you don't want to stay here. Come into my place. And now suddenly the story sounds very much like Genesis 19. When the angels of the Lord go to Sodom to pull Lot out and save his family from God's divine judgment and the destruction of the city. Because they come in and they stay with this old man. And then sometime that evening, the men of the city surround his house and say, send out your, the stranger. We want to know him. And it's not just get to know him, it's we want to know him sexually. And the old man's like, don't do this, don't do this. And when, in the Middle East, when you invite somebody into your home, it may be your worst enemy. You may have been trying to kill him for years, but once they're in your home, you're bound. You're sworn to protect their life, even at the cost of your own. So don't do this to this guy. Don't do this. He's my guest. He's a guest in our city. Don't do this. Here, take my young daughter. Oh, take his concubine while you're at it. No, 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 no. So finally the Levite, who wouldn't spend the night in a godless city full of heathen Jebusites, throws his concubine out the door to be abused all night long to the point she dies by morning. All the while, Scripture tells us, while they ate and made merry indoors. The next morning, he gets up early because I got to get on my way. And there on the threshold, on the front step, lay his concubine, dead. So he steps over, gets his donkeys, puts her on it, brings her body home, where he promptly cuts her up into 12 pieces, 
sends the body parts out throughout Israel with a messenger saying, this is what the people, the men of Gibeah did to my concubine. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to let this stand? And within a short period of time, 400,000 fighting men gather up from around the country of Israel and they come to Bethel and they have a big meeting. What are we going to do? What's going to stand? And they ask the Levite, what happened? Tell us your story. And he promptly puts a much more positive spin on it. They came and tried to kill me and I escaped, but they caught my concubine and they, they killed her. That's not really what happened. And so in an uproar, what do we do? How, we're going to go and we're going to destroy Gibeah. And there is in part a little bit here, a little bit of obedience here. In that Deuteronomy chapter 12, God commands Israel, if there is a town or a place or individuals that completely go off the rails and they walk away from me, you need to destroy them. You need to root that evil out so it does not grow in Israel. So they go and they figure out, okay, this it's going to take a lot of food. It's going to take a lot of provisions to feed us. Let's figure out how this is going to work to support us as we go up to battle against Gibeah. And they go up there and they say, send out the men responsible. No, we aren't going to do that. And so then they appeal to the tribe, the territory of Benjamin, say, send out the guys who are responsible for this and we'll leave you alone. No, 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 no. You're going to fight them. You're going to fight all of us. And so you have 400,000 fighting men from Israel and, and Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, they're able to garner 26,700. I'm sure it's rounded off. And so then, in all of this mess... They appeal to God as to what we should do and who should lead us out in battle tomorrow. And the Lord communicates to them, I don't know how, it doesn't say, just as the Lord says, have Judah lead out in the battle. And so Judah goes up, leads the way, and on that day, the first day of the battle, 22,000 die. 22,000 Israelites die in battle. And the Benjamites go back home, and they celebrate. And Israel goes back to Bethel, which is about 10 miles away from Gibeah. And they weep and cry and carry on. And what went wrong? And oh my goodness, this is terrible. And the next morning they get up and they ask God, what do we do? He says, well, go fight them. And they go out and they fight again. And on day number two, 18,000 Israelites are killed in the battle. And the, and the tribe of Benjamin goes back and they settle in because they've had another great victory. And this time, Israel goes back to Bethel and they fast and they weep and they offer sacrifices and they make offerings and they seek God's face as to what are we doing? They humble themselves. And at that point, God responds to their humility. And when you see fasting in Scripture, you're doing away with food, 
You're doing away with something that you really want so that you can get something you want more. And it's not something you want, it's someone. We want more of God. And the fasting showed a change of heart, a humility that hadn't been there before. And he says, you go up tomorrow and I will deliver them into your hands. And so on day number three, they go up and a little different strategy. They set up an ambush and, and they end up wiping out, all but wiping out the entire tribe of Benjamin because suddenly it goes from destroying a city full of evil people to, you know what, Benjamin fought us. So they go from city to city to city to city to city and kill everyone from the tribe of Benjamin they can find. Men, women, children, even livestock. And they burn the cities to the ground and they destroy them until there's only 600 men of Benjamin, 600 fighting men who are up in the rocks and the crags and the hills. of It's called Rimmon to where the time and the treasure and the life that it would cost to get those last 600 rooted out just weren't worth it. And so Israel goes back to Bethel and they began to think about what they did. In response to a horrible wrong, we've now done a horrible wrong. We set out to commit genocide. This is terrible. Now what? And in the haste to go into battle, they'd all made, a, made an oath. They'd all sworn that no matter what, no matter when, we will not give any of our daughters to them to be married. We're just cutting them off. They're all done. So now we've made this oath. We've made this promise. There's 600 fighting men up in the rocks of Remen. There's no way for them you know, they're just going to die out and now there's going to be a breach. There's going to be a gap. There's going to be, we're going to lose part of Israel because of our rash actions, because of our pride, because of our anger. So now what do we do? And as they're looking around, they find out that the area of Jabesh Gilead, which is a little bit farther north here yet, nobody from Jabesh Gilead had come down to be part of this fight. So whether they didn't get the memo or whether they just decided that it's not our problem or you've got enough help, we're just going to stay home, whatever the case was, it's like, well, you know what? They didn't come. They weren't part of this oath. So even in their remorse for what they've done to Benjamin, they go up there and they wipe out the people of Jabesh Gilead, fellow countrymen. But they save 400 young virgins to be given to them as wives. But we're still 200 women short. What do we do? Oh yeah, there's this festival at Shiloh. And this goes on and that goes on. So, okay, the 200 guys that are without wives, you come down here and hide in the bushes and we'll all turn the other way and you can just take the women that you want to have for your wife. And that way we can fulfill our oath and we can just say, oh, they were taken. And the book of Judges ends with saying, and Benjamin rebuilt their cities. In verse 25, and in those days, there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it ends. <laughs> it's a sad commentary. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And for most of my life, I've just thought, well, there's no king, there was no leader, there was no one to keep everybody in line, so everybody did. But what makes it even sadder, this is Samuel who has been writing this, in all likelihood, Samuel. And he's reflecting the sentiment of Israel. If we only had a king, then things would be better. If we had someone to follow, then things would be better. Rather than taking responsibility for themselves and saying, I will follow, I'm going to do what Joshua declared back right before they came into the land. It's like, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. You decide what you're going to do, but this is what I'm going to do. No, we need someone else to make that decision for us. A king is not the answer. The king, the creator, the sustainer, the author of this book is the answer. Not a king. Even in this statement that Samuel's making in in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Even in this statement, we see a sense of misplaced trust. This is an election year. Are we placing our hope and our trust and the folks that get elected this fall to make everything better, to fulfill the hundreds of lies that are being, promises that are being made. Faithful and humble and teachable and obedient hearts hungry for the Lord, for our creator, for our sustainer, for our savior. That's the answer. It's not a particular leader. And even in our church, as we are in the process of finding a senior pastor. And I can remember Vic Walter, if you were here 15, 16 years ago. Well, the old wooden pulpit would have been here. Back a little bit. And he had to hold on to keep himself upright. And you never knew if he was going to make it up here or not on any given Sunday. He was old and he was frail. And I can remember that long bony finger as he held on with the other hand. 
Look to the Lord, not to another man as a pastor. Look to Jesus. And I was sitting there and was really uncomfortable. If we're looking to an individual or a person to make sure that we are doing the right thing, we're, we're stuck, we're lost. Our hope is not in a person. It's in our God, it's in our creator, it's in our sustainer, it's in his son, our savior. And as we look in the book of, especially in these chapters, and, and I read this and I just keep thinking, I, every time I read through it, I just think, just stop. Because every step, you just get, it gets worse. Like when you say something And it sounds so different in your head, but when it comes out of your mouth, you realize, oh boy, that just doesn't sound right at all. Had one of those moments with my wife yesterday. <laughs> and the more you try to explain, the worse it gets. Just stop. And in all of this, It just gets, goes from bad to worse. Just stop. Look around. We need to stop looking for a person to fix our problems. We need to stop looking for someone else to blame for our decisions. Well, I wouldn't be here if so-and-so hadn't done that. Yeah, well, maybe. Just stop. Own your own stuff. It's part of growing up. It's part of becoming mature. Just stop. Confess your sins. Confess your shortcomings. Begin to pray for a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. as we learn to, to better press in, to better draw near to Jesus. Just stop looking to the culture at large to determine how my life should look. Just stop. Israel's been doing this. They look around, the people they've dispossessed, we've talked about it. Those folks are being run out. It's divine judgment for their sin. For hundreds and hundreds of years of compiled and compounded sin. And God says, this land is promised to you. And you can keep it as long as you don't do all the stuff that's been going on before you got here. And within a few short years, they're doing the exact same thing. Well, that's what everyone else is doing. Worked for them. No, it didn't.
Just stop looking around, see how someone else is living. Okay, that's how I can. Stick to the eternal and unchanging and written word of God. That is our rock. That is our anchor. That is the one thing that doesn't move. Come back to it and back to it and back to it. It may not be popular, but it is truth. It is eternally true. It may be difficult, but it is the way to life. And as God told his people, he says, you're chosen, and you're not chosen because you're special. You're special because you've been chosen. And you've been chosen not just so you can be special. You've been chosen so that the world can see that there is a difference when you follow me. So don't live like everyone else is living. Don't worship like everyone else worships so that the rest of the world can see what it is to follow me and they will be drawn to that. So just stop doing what everyone else, doing what everyone else is doing and do what I ask you to do. You'll be alone, you'll be in the minority and that's, just do it. It's what I'm asking And finally, just stop playing games with God. These last five chapters have all been giant games. Well, I stole money from my mom in chapter 17. I'm nervous because she uttered a curse against the thief, and I don't want that to come about, so I'm going to return the money. We're going to make an idol and set up a shrine. But God will bless it if I have a Levite kind of oversee this whole rotten mess. I'm going to play games. In chapter 18, the tribe of Dan, we aren't going to do what God asked us to do. Instead, we're going to go do what God asked another tribe to do. And then he'll bless us. No, you're just playing games. And in chapter 18, or 19, have a Levite playing games. And then you have a nation playing games. Well, we swore we wouldn't give them any wives. Well, how do we get around this? And they begin to treat God like he's a crooked lawyer or a politician creating loopholes to get around what's, already, what's good for everyone else. God doesn't play games. I can't bargain my way to anything with God. I have no chips. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What may work with the crowd you're running with doesn't work with me. What may work within the culture in which you live, that's not the way I operate. God doesn't play games. 
Numbers 23, 19. This is the story of Balaam. You go back to Genesis, not Genesis, Numbers 22. We meet this false prophet who doesn't want to obey God, but he does listen to his donkey. You can read it this afternoon. But in Numbers 23, as God is talking to Balaam, he says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he would change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We have the word of God. And he has promised to do what he has said he will do in this book. We cannot play games with God. Because God doesn't play. He's laid it out. This is the way it is. And you can circle around and play around and do around and whatever around. And when you're done playing, then we can sit down and we can talk and we can develop a right relationship. Playing games always leads to compromise. Always. Well, I don't have any intention of doing this, whatever you define this as, but if I go to the place where this stuff takes place, and if I get caught up in it, well, then it's not really my fault, or I have an excuse, or I didn't see that coming, wink, wink, and God will forgive, just stay away. Quit playing games. Compromise always leads to sin. Period. We can't compromise the word of God and avoid sin in our life. It's hard enough to live righteous and holy and upright lives in this present age without mixing in compromise on what we know is true and what God has said is true. Playing games leads to compromise. Compromise leads to sin. And sin always leads to hurt destruction, and death. Ultimately, that's the only three places you're going to be going. Hurt, at the very least, destruction, and death on the other side of that scale, that spectrum. So we look to Jesus. We look to his word And we ask him to give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness so that we want this, so that we want him more than we want whatever it is that culture 
is enticing us with. We ask him for an insatiable desire to know him more. That what I've learned and what I've been taught and how I've seen him work yesterday is great and I can't wait to tell somebody about that. But that's nothing compared to what he's going to be doing today or tomorrow or in the days to come. So just stop. That's why we see in the book of Psalms 34, be still. Not Psalm 34. 46. 34, 8 is, that's, that's the other one I like. Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. And as we're still and know that I am God, then Psalm 34, 8. They just ran away. Well, you can look it up. But we need to stop doing what we're doing when it's not working and we go back to what we know works and we stay close to that. We stay close to the Lord. We stay away. Taste and see and know that the Lord is good. When we're still, we taste and see. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.